Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. This is James Orr, and we've got Robert Borland, my co-host today. And joining us today is Jim Akinson. Hi, Jim. How are you doing today? Doing good, James. Doing real good. Uh, we we uh, pleasure to have you on today. Um, why don't you go ahead and give us like a rundown of where you're from and uh, how you're involved in traditional archery and, and whatnot? Sure. You bet. Well, right now I reside in Enterprise, Oregon, in the northeast corner of the state. Um, I was born and raised in Oregon. Um, the west side, west of Beaverton, is where I spent my early years. And I uh, got into bow hunting, actually, when I was 12 or 13. I think my first season was probably when I was 13. Um, 1970 was the first year that I bow hunted. Wow, did your father and, did your father bow hunt? No, my father did not. Um, my parents were World War II parents, and my dad was in the European theater. Um, and he really came back after World War II. He'd, he'd grown up in Montana, rural Montana. He grew up hunting, but he came back from war and didn't really want to mess with guns and it sort of had an impact on my capability to own them so uh but my parents were finding me bow hunting so that's nice. how i settled on bow hunting i had a neighbor a good neighbor friend well the fisk family tom fisk is my best friend still is and we cultivated an interest in bow hunting right from the get-go that time 1970 uh, 70, 71, right in that time period. Compounds weren't out yet. Uh, the Allen patent might have been out and about, but everybody was shooting recurves and longbows, uh, and that's what we got into, shooting recurves. Awesome. And, yeah, I did a lot of my first bow hunting on the wet Oregon coast. Um, also hunted Canyon Creek. I hunted Canyon Creek in the early to mid-70s. Um, south of John Day. So that was Actually, a tra- that was a traditional, uh, traditionally like one of the first bow hunting places in Oregon. Is that correct? Yes, and it was the second oldest bow hunting area in the United States. I believe there's one in either Pennsylvania or Ohio that uh, was just a hair older, but it it dates back to, I believe, the late 30s. Um, the Williams Ranch. Uh, they're out of Canyon City. And uh, I actually shot my first buck over there, a little four-good-horn buck. And uh, it wasn't the first deer. I think my first couple deer were black. Well, I know they were black tails on the Oregon coast. And um, hunting in Canyon Creek kind of cultivated a new interest for me, um, one mule deer. And uh, in two, hunting in more remote, mountainous places, which I really became fond of. And by the time I was in college, I was pretty much only hunting in wilderness areas or backcountry places uh, for either mule deer or elk. And uh, and that led to my hunting experiences um, with a job situation in the central Idaho wilderness, the Frank Church River and the Return Wilderness, uh, from pretty much... 82 to 2010, about a 28-year period, um, of which 21 
years of that 28 years, Holly and I, my wife Holly and I, were managers of the University of Idaho field station called Taylor Ranch. And it positioned us in probably one of the best mule deer hunting places in Idaho, if not the West, and really led, for me anyway, into a refinement of my my bow hunting strategy. When we first went in there, I was actually shooting a compound instinctively at the time, but um, I was pretty much 1982 in transition back to um, traditional equipment. And first a longbow, and then I pretty much settled on recurves, um, first Brackenberry recurves, and then Blacktail recurves. Um, and that, those are my primary hunting weapons, uh, along with a Allen Boyce Liberty longbow that I dabbled with from time to time, just for something different. And uh, yeah, can you set the stage for us a little bit about? Um, your your time in Idaho um, on the Taylor Ranch and kind of explain how that all played out and I understand you were living on the wilderness off the grid and can you can you touch on that to kind of set the stage? Sure, yeah. The, the Taylor Ranch is the most remote year-round residence in lower 48 for starters. We were 35 miles from the end of the road and and actually, that was in the summer. It was further than that in the winter. We had an airstrip there, backcountry airstrip. And that piece of central Idaho, which people that live there call the backcountry, um, was like a little hunk of Alaska. Um, we had mail plane service um, twice a month in the winter for most of the years we were there. And then weekly in the summer. That's how we got our supplies and mail. And uh, and how students from the University of Idaho would would fly in and join us for various activities. But that that lifestyle, uh, we were there year round all the time, and we used stock horses and mules for logistical support. We put up hay with a mule team uh, for pretty much all the years we were there and brought in firewood and pretty much lived an old-style existence. In fact, um, a year ago, I published a book, along with Holly, called 7,003 Days, which goes over a lot of our lifestyle adventures uh, living there. And one chapter is specific to bow hunting. And my bow hunting focus back there... um, was interestingly intertwined with a lot of history archaeology. And in our early years there, 82 to 84, Holly and I were involved in uh, facilitating and helping on an archaeology project where a faculty member from the University of Idaho would come in in the summer with graduate students, and we would excavate uh, Sheep Eater Indian village sites, basically. And in the process of doing that, we would find arrowheads, we'd find points, we'd find uh, basket remnants, we'd find all kinds of interesting things. But we also talked about how those sheep eater Indians would exist from season to season. And obviously, bow hunting was a big part of what they did. Uh, The bows they made, which were uh, faced with sheep horn, 
um, were highly sought after in the um, indigenous community around that part of the West. So they used them as a trade item. But I just had to ponder a lot on how they would have hunted day in, day out, dependent upon it for their survival, and and have to develop strategies that would uh, work with their super close-range operating uh, opportunities. And we found blinds that were used. A lot of them were undocumented. So we, we were involved in documenting those hunting blinds. But... What what, their we blind, also what find, were their blinds made of, Jim? Was it all rock? Like, can you kind of just explain a typical well, they were, blind you found? Just this is all fascinating yeah. to me. I mean, just awesome. The typical blind was made of rocks, uh, about football sized boulders that were piled in a circle. Um, there appeared to be an excavation associated with that, so they would sit down, maybe even a ledge. Mm -hmm. to sit on, um, and the rock structure itself, of course, these were kind of broken down now in modern times, Yeah. but we were, we were estimating there were in between two and three feet above ground level. Okay. Um, but I, and I think they were used as perhaps a primary, uh, method, but I think seasonally they used other methods. Do you do you and think they were do you think they were using drives doing drives to push them by the blinds? Or? I, I do, I yeah, do think yeah. they were not only using drives, but they were they were positioned on migration routes, okay. which uh, still still are used today by both bighorn sheep and mule deer. But one thing that we found, which is kind of interesting, um, from the bone remains of the excavation sites, was as many mule deer as bighorn sheep. And we would have campfire discussions. We had a barbecue pit and we'd talk about what it must have been like. And we figured, well, they couldn't just be hunting one species or the other all the time. They had to capitalize on seasonal opportunities such as the rut for both species. And then if they're slinging arrows at sheep, they're going to get wise to it after a while. So they'd have to switch to deer. But I got thinking about their strategies and how they used to, uh, of course, having to, I mean, that was their subsistence. And I got thinking, you know, with that type of bow they had, everything about it, they couldn't just depend on drives. They had to use some other strategies. And I got thinking, you know, they were acute observers of animal behavior. I'm sure they would have recognized that the females of both species are pretty receptive to their presence. And mule deer in particular seem like, well, they do one of two things. They either skedaddle when they see you or they look at you and, and go about their business. And and I found that by acclimating them to my presence before the season, this is does, when the season came around and those same does would be receptive to me being around, uh, obviously bucks are going to filter through as the does come into season and there was potential for an opportunity to capitalize on that and again reflecting back to the sheep eater indians and how they had to have survival strategies uh, they couldn't just depend on one thing all the time so what i came to call the lost wallet technique uh, which is befriending the doe 
was probably maybe not a primary method, but a secondary and certainly one that they would have used in the rut. And over the years, um, I used that. Well, let's see. I think there was actually 20 seasons that I hunted there, 20, 20 deer seasons. And I shot 12 bucks and six were open young size. Um, and I, I'm sure I did. In fact, I'm sure I was the most effective bow hunter there since the sheep eater Indians. Yeah. When did the sheep eater Indians become extinct and what was that era, that date or era that, that, that they were living and hunting in these grounds? They basically occupied that big creek drainage for 1900 years, as near as the archaeologists could tell from radiocarbon dating and radiocarbon dating of bones that were associated with their house pit sites. Um, and they were there, so say, uh, zero AD um, up until 1879. Wow. And the Sheep Eater Indian Campaign uh, was the second to the la- last on the North American continent, with the Apache Campaign being the very last, which I think was in 1880 or 1881. And the Sheep Eaters... Um, were really considered a pretty peaceful tribe. Um, they were obviously in a remote place. Pretty docile. But, yeah, but there was gold in them, their hills. Mm. And there was, there was a little bit of either real or imagined conflict with miners that ultimately led to um, the government and the army deciding that they should be... Um, rounded up and assimilated, you know, into our culture. So they were taken out of that block of country to Fort Vancouver. uh, And I think they call it an ethnologist, um, evaluated them to see what their parent stock or tribes were. And it was decided that they were um, closely related to the Choban, Shoshone Bannock. So they were taken back to Fort Hall, their... um, not too far from Idaho Falls, which really wasn't the best match in the world for them. Yeah, they were cousins of theirs or remote cousins, but uh, their culture and lifestyle was significantly different. And over the years, they were eventually assimilated with that tribe on that reservation to the point that um, their culture was absorbed. But... um, Frank Leonhardt, he's the name of the archaeologist that we worked with, and he was real fascinated and um, trying to reconstruct what their their lifestyle was, and he had a uh, grant from the National Geographic, and it was kind of a big deal, and um, got a lot of students helping us, plus helping them, plus uh, Holly and I. And it was just a great, great opportunity for us, and it really made me incredibly reflective of... Uh, how those people bow on it, that piece of country. Yeah, that's awesome. Did they ever turn up any of their uh, bows? Uh, they, uh, would that work? No. Um, there is in museums, I think two different places, um, relic bows of the sheep eaters. Okay. Um, better 
better examples come from the Yellowstone country sheep eaters, uh, where I believe the Smithsonian's collected some. I always wanted to make one. The archaeologists knew quite a bit about how they were constructed, the types of uh, animal hoof melded glue they used, um, what they used for, um, you know, the parent wood um, in that piece of country, which uh, is kind of a difficult one. Here where I live now, this is Nez Perce country, and and their bows were pretty distinctly, the wood portion was made out of uh, juniper a lot. Um, and the sheep eaters where we were there, um, it seems like juniper's there, but it's a little more scarce uh, than it is here in Wallowa County. And uh, he thought that mountain mahogany was um, oh, wow. apparent. That seems to me like it would made a pretty stiff bow. Yeah, uh, it's kind of stuff to work with. So I don't know. It's just like it's kind of unresolved. The one thing that's known for certain was that um, sheep horn was heated, steamed, stripped, and used uh, as fiber fibrous facing on the bows. Okay, very cool. So, yeah, yep. And we found heads. We found points that were either spear or lateral points that dated back uh, seven, eight thousand years predated the sheep eater indians to probably uh, a more parent tribe than they have been more closely related to the Nimipu or uh, the nez perce um, the nez perce were in this region longer um, than were the sheep eaters or the takutika as they called themselves takutika means um, sheep eater okay so did how far uh were these hunting grounds from the Taylor Ranch where where you uh resided? It from 200 yards to 12 miles. Oh wow. And, yeah. And there was another phenomena there that you know that if you can envision a young me, I was 25, 26 at the time all a similar age, a uh, graduate student who's doing work on bobcats, a PhD student, and uh, bobcats and cougars. And then this archaeologist, and we're maybe one of his students or two, sitting around a barbecue pit, watching the fire late into the evening, talking about the subsistence patterns of these people. And, you know, it's dead quiet. Um, that time weren't any wolves, but you'd hear coyotes howl. And it was just, it was a pretty moving experience. And it really, for me, left quite an impression. I bet. And plus, plus there's a domesticated bobcat hanging, hanging around the fire, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, there was. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, yep. I've, re- I've read half of the book. I read it in a uh, antelope ground blind this fall. And I'm um, waiting for the, the rain to come back so I can finish the, the other half. All right. Awesome. So I always felt, I think if we would have stayed there another decade, I would have gone the primitive archery route. In fact, I'm certain I would have. <laughs> and uh, tried tried to make one of those sheets. I started to collect some information on it. And there were some people around the West who had. Um, Dick Robertson and his boy Yote had actually 
been playing around with it. And, um, there was a guy in Wyoming, I can't think of his name right now, um, who, who'd actually made a few replica sheep eater bows. So that would have probably been the next step for me. And, um, then nap some heads and oh, awesome. use river birch. They probably use river birch for arrow material. Um, mm-hmm. young river birch saplings grows pretty straight, pretty strong. Um, I don't know a lot. And there was a lot of caves in that country that were yet unexplored, at least by me. Um, and I always wanted to find a quiver of arrows. <laughs> that'd be, yeah. that'd be just incredible. But yeah. there were, le- there, that place is full of legends. And there was a legend from the sheep eater Indian campaign, which was not an easy campaign for the army. It actually took them three different expeditions to finally round up the 51 sheep eater Indians. That that big grit country. But um, there was also a legend of a big rifle cache. When the army got routed by the sheep eaters in Expedition 1, um, they cached a bunch of 4570 rifles in a cave. And I spent a fair amount of time looking for that. Um, never found it. They also cached a cannon, a mountain howitzer cannon in their retreat. Um, didn't have good leadership in the first expedition, which I think led to a lot of their problems. And, but expedition number two and number three, they were more effective, and primarily because they they knew the hangouts of the sheep eater Indians and um, knew how they would put up their food and uh, basically destroyed their food and their house structures. Uh, so they couldn't make it through the winter. So it was kind of a an expedition or a campaign of attrition where they ultimately just uh, removed their resources, the Army did. But um, one of the packers, and this is in the book, our book, uh, one of the, about Dave Lewis, one of the packers is named Dave Lewis, Cougar Dave, and he was on at least two of the three expeditions and he went on to reside at what became Taylor Ranch, where we were. It actually, up until the 1930s, was called the Lewis Place, uh, after his name. But one of the other legends that um, occurs in that piece of country was that there was two or three family groups that lived well beyond the Roundup in 1879. And... They probably lived in one of the more remote little drainages, maybe resided in some caves. And uh, and I always felt like Dave Lewis would have known that secret, uh, living back there. And he was a prolific houndsman, cougar hunter, so he would have covered some ground. And there's no way that he wouldn't have come in contact with those people if, if there were some relic uh, tribal members that were living in that remote area. Wow. wow, so li- so living in that country, uh, at least hunting in that country, you, it must have had kind of a spiritual feel and made you feel kind of small and your part in just being in this area that was just almost bigger than life. Knowing that history, I would imagine very much so. And by my later years there, it was um, super nostalgic. And yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. That um, there wasn't a night or an evening that I wouldn't give thought to those native people and their their hunting methods, 
um, what they would have experienced weather-wise and how they would have responded to the weather changes. And when you're living in that environment and you're hunting in it, um, in other words, hunting in the environment you live in, it's, it, it creates a different atmosphere. And I, it's hard to recreate. And like now, um, I'm really, to be honest, I'm only oriented towards hunting backcountry and wilderness areas. Um, and some of it's just to try and recapture some of that feeling. And in fact, next week I'm going back to Upper Big Creek and I'm going to deer hunt. So wow, and I Very haven't cool. I haven't had my bow in that country. And well, the last time I hunted was 2010. I had a big moon sheep tag at that time. Wow. wow. Yeah, I tell some some local guys here that just grew up and they just hunt, you know, day hunt from the house. And they've never really been on a, I have a few friends have never really been on a hunting trip and I've explained to them and it's not even close to what you experienced, but just what it's like to go out for 10, 12 days, you know, two weeks. And after a few days, you know, becoming a part of the mountains and really getting your head in the game, uh, is, is a much different experience than coming home every night and dealing with you know, society. Um, and so uh, society yeah. and so, yeah. so being somewhere that's even bigger and special and, and has this type of uh, history, uh, I can only imagine. Um, it's kind of like when, when you're, you pick up an arrowhead, you know, that, and you're, and you got a bow in your hand and you realize that you, you, you are, uh, uh, not the first bow hunter in this area, but, having that history that you had, it's, that's, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's amazing. It, it does make for a very rich experience. And, uh, yeah, it's in, in writing doesn't really even capture it. It's, it's almost like it's best described around a campfire in the mountains somewhere. Right. But, um, yeah, it's something that I really value, cherish, thirst for i guess right and i was just really lucky to have had those experiences and, and i had the opportunity to share it with friends over the years uh, good friend philip commons from new zealand uh, oregon friends um, burn strubel who's pretty well-known traditional bowhunter from uh, your side of the state corvallis area it's no longer with us but he was very inspiring to me as I was stepping back into traditional archery in the early 80s. Um, Mentorial uh, got me into PBS. And, and another guy who's, well, it's hard to think of Mike Schlegel as an old-timer, but he is now. Um, <laughs> he was originally from Oregon, but uh, spent his career working for Idaho Fishing Game, and he would come in and hunt with me. And, and then some local friends um, from... Northeast Oregon that came in, several of them, and we just, ah, we had a great time. And the camaraderie you have in those backcountry hunting situations, whether it's the remote parts of the West or Alaska or New Zealand or other parts of the world, um, are just really rich. And if you're successful, that's great. But, you know, when I look back and reflect back, on those hunts, I remember the the camping and the weather and the 
and the thought process that um, went with those hunts as much as I do the success or lack of success. Yeah, and and you you currently keep stock and um, hunt wilderness uh, with stock, so you are used to getting you know deep into the backcountry. Yeah, that's my mode. We have five five mules and a horse, and that's a number that we've maintained for you know, over 30 years, I guess, 34 years, is uh, trying to have in between four and six head enough so we can move a good camp and then do some riding. And uh, obviously, if you shoot something, you can move a elk or a deer out yeah. in the backcountry. Yeah, it's a big part of my lifestyle. And um, in the years we were at Taylor Ranch, we had this constant flow of students that would come and go. And a lot of them would be summer interns of ours. And uh, interestingly, traditional archery became a big part of their internship. And in hearing <laughs> back from them, the things that they said they liked the best were, were not the science aspects. It was the bow, shoot, the bow shooting in the evening or the packing lessons um, of the mules. That's what they liked the most. And putting up hay with a mule team. Yeah, uh, Jim. Jim's book, uh, seven hundred and three days. Seven thousand. So yeah, seven thousand and three days in the wilderness. Is that what it's? Is that the title? Yeah, seven thousand and three days in the Frank Church River of No Return wilderness, and that's how many days of diary we had. Um, seven volumes, seven three hundred page volumes of diary, and I just counted up how many entries we had. We were actually there longer than 7,003 days, but that's what it added up to. So I figured, you know, that sounds like a pretty good title. Yeah. So use and, it for a title. And you, the, like I said, the book is broken up into a two-part, and, and I've read the first part. And for everyone listening, definitely uh, get Jim's book. I, I got just immersed into this way of life reading Jim's time there. and I mean, just putting up hay with your stock was uh, it was an un- unbelievable just to, the, the the work the sweat and labor you guys did um but the ingenuity uh that you guys um uh performed to to get this uh job done it's 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 amazing yeah well thank you yeah it was and it was great team building and yeah, we'd work hard in the day and shoot bows or have fishing competition in the evening. So it was a hard to replace lifestyle. I really miss it, but um, I'm glad we had the experience that we did. And uh, yeah, yeah you great you memories. Definitely uh, didn't never have any traffic jams on your way to work, did you? <laughs> no traffic. No, uh, no but but. No, but you would get a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of, but some real interesting folks would drop in on you here and there, yeah. which uh, yeah. made things very it interesting. Did. Yeah. Yeah. That type of remote country attracts some interesting characters. And we met a few u- very unique ones over the years. Yeah. But, but there's another phenomena about living that remotely, and that is your vulnerability. Um if you have a toothache and it's not pliable, um, uh-huh. you know, you've got to figure out, figure out ways to make do. But we had this backcountry radio network, so we had neighbors that were scattered all over the Idaho backcountry and, and down in the desert country, too, the Owyhees in Idaho and Oregon. 
um, in most of the years we were there, had backcountry radios, and the operator was based in Cascade. So if you had a problem, you get on there, and some people left their radios on all night. Like when we had the forest fire sweep down over us, um, we couldn't communicate out to oh, any of the usual entities. But one of our neighbors over on the main Salmon River had their radio on, and we said, hey, we're evacuating, we're self-evacuating, we're leaving right now, and we're going to the Flying Bee Ranch 21 miles away, um, should be there late tonight. And so then the next day they passed on that piece of information. So it's a, there's a community back there, again, kind of like what occurs in a lot of Alaska. And uh, that's a real rich experience in itself. And even though we came from different walks of life, you know, some folks were miners, some folks were outfitters. You know, we ran a university field station. Uh, we had this commonality of all living a similar lifestyle. Yeah, I got a kick. You mentioned the tooth pain. The, I think it was like uh, they, someone had recommended um, kerosene for this poor guy who, who whose mouth was driving him insane. Was that? Yeah. Was that? Yeah. The the whole thing was just. Yeah, I really got into the book. I really can't wait to finish it. It's an awesome book. Good. Thank you. Yeah, and I think that. In traditional Bowhunter magazine, the two-part piece in 2014 that um, I put in there, it captures a little more of the hunting stuff. And, you know, being, having the opportunity to do an article over two editions, I think it was March and May 2014, yep. um, gives the chance to really explain the hunting style and, I guess, the nostalgic aspects of that style of hunting and um, to me, traditional bow hunting is more than just using a simple bow and, say, a simple arrow. I, I really feel that it involves a complete experience with a remote backcountry aspect. And if you can throw in some old traditional forms of transportation like mules, that's just all the better. And a lot of times I would build my shelters. Um, I guess in later years I got soft and used a Cabela's a lock neck tent. I, always, <laughs> I never felt as good in that as I did when I would take my canvas Manny tarps and create a shoulder around a, a little tin wood stove or sheep eater stove. How many nights did you, was, how many nights did you sleep in a cave? Um, you know, not many in a cave because okay. I was really into lean to type shelters, okay. um, with tarps. I had some tarps that had uh, tarps that I would bundle my equipment in, which is called nannying. Mm -hmm. And I had some that had stove jacks built into them. So, you know, I can make a simple um, lean-to type structure and put a stove pipe through it. And, and, you know, you you huddle close around the stove, that's for sure, especially if you've got one end of your structure that's open. But I spent a lot of nights at zero or below zero. Oh, yeah. that, That country's cold, man. It is cold. Yeah, so cool. I know, you know, people that come back from the military, you know, they kind of deal with entering back into society. I mean, what's it like to be kind of a mountain man for 20 some years? I know there was a break in between, but I mean, I know enterprise is no booming metropolis, but I mean, is it kind of weird just, you know, 
being back in society and all the stuff that people worry about and you're just, you know, I mean, it's got to feel super weird. That's a good question, Robert. Actually, um, it does. And I, I think that I've struggled a little bit. I think I feel I've done okay with it. I think Holly's adapted better than me uh, to it. And, uh, and I don't know why, I guess, I let that lifestyle almost become spiritual to me, which is good and bad. Good because you're immersed, bad because it's hard to leave. Um, there are times when it's difficult, but if I can do high quality hunts in the backcountry, I can keep inspired. And to me, that's what I'm hoping I'm able to do for another 15 or 20 years. Yeah, I just um, yeah, that that lifestyle. You know, the I'm sure. Uh, you know, I daydream about that lifestyle. I mean, oh, it'll yeah. never happen. It'll never happen. But I always think, what would it be like to just head out into the wild and just not come back? <laughs> well, we know <laughs> one know, guy who knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, and I think, yeah, I think that that's a good point. But I'll tell you what becomes incredibly significant is your basic health, and right. you, it's you're so dependent upon good health. And I think something that kind of puts things in perspective for me, you know, we were, I was 50, we were 53 when we left in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I've had a few problems since, you know, I've had a hip replacement. I've had some issues and, um, those would be nagging to still be in that kind of a lifestyle. It's doable. But it also makes you appreciate, you know, like old-time miners, uh, mountain men, people like that. That age really did become a factor. And right. As you get arthritic, you get a bad back, you get bad hips, and sleeping on the ground. Or um, we've got a lot of conveniences, and we had a lot of conveniences there. You know, good sleeping bags, a good sleeping pad. Those are important. Yeah. But to take that sort of a lifestyle and and use maybe a wool blanket if you're lucky um, and maybe be advanced in age without any painkillers. It wouldn't have been so great probably. For for me hearing where you guys would just take a couple elk quarters and hang them on a meat pole for the winter and just go out and and cut off of them because you didn't have a refrigerator or freezer and it was cold out and just pull this frozen meat off and use it uh, as you went, that really kind of set the stage. It was like, wow, these guys are, they're, they're really, uh, they're doing it. Did, did Cougar Dave well, live with a female panther, panther in the muscle shell too? <laughs> I just had to ask that. <laughs> you know, he, he was quite the guy. He, um, he actually was an Oregonian. Really? Um, left, yeah. He left Oregon in the 1870s and went first to the Grangeville type area and then uh, south into the Salmon River Mountains after that. But, um, and I, and, well, actually, he, he, and then he got caught up in 1879 in the Sheep Indian campaign. And I think that was just strictly a money making opportunity as a civilian packer. Oh, yeah. But it exposed them to a lot of places that, um, he took a liking to, and, uh, took a liking from the concept of starting a homestead. But, 
And he had a few health issues over the years, but um, I don't know. There's just something about that lifestyle. You don't have time to be sick. And if you get hurt, um, if you don't get infection, uh, you're probably going to recover. And if you take good care of yourself. And um, there's one chapter in there. Um, I can't remember. Life on the Trail, I believe it's called in my book. And I talk about this guy, Wilbur Wiles. In fact, I was going to fly to Big Creek tomorrow. I had to cancel it uh, to see Wilbur. He's 102 now. Oh. And um, he was the houndsman of the guy that Morris Hornacher, who set up the sale between the Taylors and the University of Idaho in 1970. Uh, he was, Wilbur was Morris's houndsman on Morris's cougar study. And that guy first went into that country in the 30s. And here he's still alive today and um, still walks a couple miles a day. And he's 102. He can't wow. hear him with the His teeth are terrible. But he's still alive. And you can't help but think that the lifestyle's got to be a big contributing factor to that. Well, yeah, just your, your stress level. I mean, I like James, I always dream of that. You know, my wife always tells me I was born hundreds of years too late, but I mean, just the, you know, get up in the morning, you go to work, you fight traffic, you deal with all the stress of your job, you know, just the kids that, you know, that just everything that goes along with our society. I mean, everything just had to be just slowed way down. You're just thinking about, you know, food, shelter, you know, keeping everything going, just, it has to be a little healthier that way. But on the other hand, I'd be dead already, like when my appendix burst a few years ago, right? You know, <laughs> no, nobody would yeah, have been there no, to save you. No. Yeah, yeah, I know. And Wilbur, when he was in his early 90s, was doing repair work on the, his roof of his cabin at Big Creek Village. And he fell off the roof and broke both his ankles and used a couple of poles, wooden poles, to drive his old truck into town to get his legs set and you know there's people just do things that are extraordinary in those living situations and it just kind of goes to the country it's a you're challenged and i think that's something that's really missing in today's society is that being challenged yeah by nature and the environment that you're living in and but uh, and not relying anyway you're not able to rely on somebody else you know, that's, that's a big part, exactly. part of the problem these days. Yeah. Well, let, let's shift gears into the traditional bow hunting side of things. So, you know, like you said in the, the um, uh, traditional bow hunting magazine, you kind of touch bases on that. Maybe we could talk a little bit about a little bit more about your hunting and the lost wallet routine. Explain that out a little bit and um, maybe tell us a, a, hunt, a, a good hunting story. Yeah, I've, I've heard rumors of this lost wallet trick. But uh, I haven't really heard the exact, and I didn't know that the Indians had wallets either. So I'm, I can't wait to hear this one. <laughs> well, they probably had a, a possible bag type device. There you go. Rather than a, than a wallet. But um, yeah, it, it really involves some pre. It cannot be done effectively without pre-scouting, and basically before the November mule deer rut. I would set up my camp like around Halloween or maybe even the week before. And in the process of setting up my camp, cutting firewood, those sorts of things, I would spend time out interacting with does 
is what it amounted to and getting them used to me. And, you know, it would start out where they might spook at 70 yards, but then they would see me enough. They would pretty soon let me get closer. And, um, and then I had some good does over the years and a, a good doe or two, uh, usually meant a high probability of a good shot at a buck, uh, 25 yards or less. Um, but bucks are still kind of cagey and they, they wanted to be with the doe for obvious reasons. Yeah, but I was, I wouldn't try and hide. It was usually better if you didn't hide, but you acted very casual, avoided uh, face, looking contact, look at the ground, pretending like you're doing something different. Uh, you had to manage the wind early on, but after a while, um, even with the bucks, if, if they'd spent some time around you, uh, they could wind you and, and not spook. Um, but everything you did, you have to do covertly, uh, like raising your bow. You don't just up and raise your bow and shoot. You just kind of do a slow, maybe knock an arrow looking away from them and then slowly pivot and uh, slowly draw, uh, slowly pick a spot and, and hopefully shoot faster than slowly. <laughs> but, uh, would you say that you also would kind of control your excitement level and your energy and just, and try to just be real nonchalant and real elusive and, um, I, I've experimented relaxed. relaxed. I exper- I always, yeah. I think that for me, um, not acting predatory, just as casual as you could be was important. Right. And, and, you know, sometimes they just flat out did not work. Yeah. Um, it was definitely not something that was 100%. It might be 40%, uh, 30 to 40% success, I would say, on getting a shot opportunity. And, but, um, gee, all the, most of the big bucks I took were using that method. I, I can only think of one that was pure spot and stock in the typical sense. Um, and then, then it was, uh, snow was a big factor I Had the right type of snow to get close. Yeah. And so when uh, you say, of, you say you had some good does, those are, did, were you able to like over the years recognize the same does? I mean, you're kind of hunting the same rutting grounds. I'm picturing, I have no idea. Yeah. But, and so you kind of yeah. had, had some does that kind of yeah. knew you and you just kind of, right. Well, I mean, you definitely that, got a, Point. That's a good point, Robert. And actually, I hunted what I called rut pockets, and I knew of three fairly good ones in that Big Creek drainage, but there was only one that didn't seem to get um, visited by other hunters at some point. And yeah, I'm sure that it was the same does year after year. And yeah, I would kind of recognize them, um, especially if they had some something like a limp or an ear that was messed up or something, maybe frostbitten. But um, I didn't view it as looking for that specific doe. Um, I, if I saw does, I would just try and interact with them. And that, and that, like the bucks, there were some does that just flat out wouldn't have anything to do with it. And and I, I had always wondered if it was, you know, maybe a doe with a fawn that the fawn sees the doe being receptive to me, and then she becomes an adult, 
and um, carries on the trade of her mom. And I do think there was definitely some of that that happened because all of a sudden I would see a, a doe that seemed pretty receptive to me. And, and I had to think back a year or two, eh, what, what was there for does with bonds? And, and I'm sure that that was something that was passed on. And that's a real advantage with hunting the same place year, year in, year out, year after year, another connection with the sheep eater Indians because they would add that same luxury. Wow. Yeah, so, that's that's next level. I mean, you're yeah. you're friending all the does. Do you, now, so, when we're talking about the Indians, though, do you think that they they went through just – you think they went through all that? Or do you think if they got a doe to friend them, they just shot and ate it? I mean – uh, what's your just well personal... that's that, that's a very good point um i don't know i honestly don't know and i did i did think about that over the years um they might have done that you shot them and ate them but if you think about it that's not going to work to their advantage yeah year um, after year they, after year that's not yeah. going to work and they had like you no. said i mean they lived there they had to they yeah. had to be like 20 steps up above what we're talking about right now, right? I mean, yeah, they, they did. I mean, it was survival yeah. for them. But I would imagine they had to realize, too, that they couldn't just shoot all the does, that they had to keep does yeah. to keep deer around. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, so I had, I mean, it's not even close to this, but after reading your article, I was hunting in southern Oregon, uh, blacktail deer on a piece of private property and this piece of private uh, was owned by um, some uh, distant family members and they did not hunt and they didn't allow hunting on this property for I don't know 25 years and they decided to allow me to hunt only because I was hunting with traditional archery and they I guess they liked me enough to and, and kind of the deal was uh, the the uh, guy that owned it, he got permission from his wife, and his wife said, you can do it, just don't tell me about it. And so they had these deer that they had kind of befriended. You know, they had these deer that hung out there that seemed pretty tame as far as the does and the spikes, the the, the yearling bucks. And so after reading that, and a lot of times I was leaving this property because there was BLM everywhere, and I would hunt the property very little, and I would go hunt BLM, and I'd come back and sit in a tree stand on the property here and there because I didn't want to really want to burn the property out. But I started noticing that these does and spike, uh, these spikes just didn't really care. They almost seemed interested in me, so I started going out there in the yard and ignoring them. And wandering around with my bow and picking up flower, you know, picking daisies and and rocks and keeping my back to them. And I never did get a buck to just show up, but I did definitely, those deer would just hang out. And, and then I would sit down by a tree and I'd watch them for a while. And I would hope a buck would show up. And, he, and it never happened, but I definitely had this group of five or six deer just milling around and didn't really care because they were tame. Yeah. Um, well, that's, uh, yeah, you were, you were applying the strategy and, um, I've tried it some on black tails. I just haven't quite gotten in the groove with them. And, um, I do have a November one, uh, 
bow tag here, and that's the rut for the whitetails. And uh, I'm tempted to to try it. That kind yeah. of passive approach, but I imagine. Passively, yeah. I imagine since I was on private property and these people had already never threatened the this herd of deer that I kind of had just a, a foothold, you know, a, a step forward on it because I wasn't on public where they were being hunted. And so I, I imagine that's the only reason why they were so quick to um, accept me. But I could see in my experience uh, over a couple of days with this how how it would, could really work and and I, I could also see like how the soon as you start to stare at them or get excited about them, how you could just run them off. Yeah, there's no question. Well, a calm demeanor is something that I don't know if it's electrical waves or what it is that's right. transmitted, but um, a calm demeanor goes a long ways. But sometimes it's hard to transition from being in that super calm mode into the act of uh, dropping the string, drawing yeah. and, and shooting. It's that to me was one of the harder transitions uh, over the years was to learn how to, because you're basically shifting three years right. uh, at that final moment. Um, either that or you're, in this incredibly slow and deliberate draw, which somehow doesn't seem to match up with picking a spot and letting an arrow fly. Yeah, and you're um, becoming a you're becoming a predator. I mean, that energy has to switch at some point. It has to switch at some point, and that transition point is, I think, the most difficult part. And yeah, because once you start into the routine, it's you kind of get a feel or a cadence for how you can progress with it. Um, one thing that I've noticed is uh, you don't want to stumble. You don't want to do something abrupt because that's the end of game a lot of times. And where I was on Big Creek, the, the ground was kind of rocky. And there were some some footing situations that just didn't work well. You needed to have or uh, ice or snow. You needed to have quite a bit of coordination so you could really be smooth. And I always equated it to smooth and slow were the two ways that you needed to be uh, when you were in close like that. And then the transition from smooth and slow to um, that predatory act of drawing and shooting an arrow, is, that's a challenge. So can you share with us maybe a story where this all came together? Well, one of my favorites, uh, which I put in the magazine and I did not put in the book, was uh, one of the bigger bucks I shot where um, it was the rut and it was warmer um, days. We hadn't had much snow um, and it was kind of a tough go. And I went over to a favorite bench I hunted and I rattled and really wasn't seeing much and uh, glassed and, um, and just was speculating on how I was going to hunt and thinking back about some of our archaeology discussions. And, um, and I heard this pitter patter of hooves. And so I kind of grabbed, reached for my bow. And by the time I got my bow and started to pull an arrow out, I see this bighorn ewe that was really literally almost on top of me. She was three or four yards away and we spooked each other and she kicked the ground and 
um, then ran off. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. And so I go over to where she's kicked the ground, and I find three-quarters of an arrowhead. And I picked it up, looked at it, and thought, wow, that's really cool. You know, that's kind of symbolic of the sheep eaters. And I, you know, worked it clean with my fingers and put it in my pocket and thought, well, this is a good good token. <laughs> so I walked about 30 yards in another direction, and um, I see this doe moving, and then pretty soon I saw a really nice big buck behind her. And uh, wow, that's cool. And it wasn't a it wasn't a doe that I uh, totally acclimated yet. Uh, in fact, I didn't really even recognize her. Uh, but she was pretty annoyed with him, and she kept she saw me and kept looking at me and kind of dancing around, trying to avoid his attempted mounting maneuvers. And uh, it, and I have had those come up to me before to, to try and rub off a buck. It's really annoying the crap out of them. Perfect. But she didn't, yeah, she didn't quite do that. Um, but she really had his attention captivated. And I moved into about 36, 37 yards, which is truly a long shot for me. But um, on our airstrip at Taylor Ranch, I do practice shooting point on, which for most of my bows is in the low 30s. And this is they were distinctly downhill for me, and I thought, boy, that's just about a point-on shot. And he was perfectly broadside, and he was just getting ready to, to pursue her and try and jump on her. And uh, I put point-on behind his shoulder and let fly, and, and uh, he, he moved forward a little bit as the arrow arrived, so it wasn't a perfect hit, but I knew it was a solid hit. And, and he ran off, and um, she ran off, and um, I pulled that arrowhead out of my pocket and <laughs> looked at it and speculated as to when it was made and how it was kind of cool, that connection between the arrowhead and making a shot on a buck. And uh, and it was getting close to dark, so I trailed it for a little ways, and I thought, oh, man, this not bleeding very much. And um, I thought I saw my arrow sticking out the other side. I was pretty sure I did, but I was surprised there wasn't much blood, which had me a little concerned. So I went back to camp, and um, and that night got bitter cold, super cold, like single digit, two above, that sort of thing. And I had a couple friends from Oregon with me, and we went, uh, Ray and Hanley. And we went and trailed, got on the track and um, trailed it, and gosh, we just... We couldn't follow it, but I said, it, it just barreled down the slope. It's got to be directly below us. Well, we found it about 600 feet in elevation below, and it had died on the run. It had died after my shot. It, um, it was so difficult to clean that thing because it was literally almost frozen solid. Yeah. And wow. The meat was good. The meat was good. It was oh, yeah. fine. Uh, I primarily boned it and everything. And, um but to me, that that kill was always extra special, and it was just that odd connection with the, the bighorn U, the arrowhead, the shot, um, the way it all came together. It was that was probably one of my more unique ones, I would say. Yeah, that sounds like a special day. Uh, yep, it was. It was a big buck. He was uh, well into Pope and Young. Wow. 
Um, and so do you, uh, still do you, are you hunting mule deer year, uh, yearly, um, Idaho or Oregon or? Well, you know, actually in recent years, I've been trying to get a blacktail on the coast. Um, that's been my, my recent focus. I'm going to hunt whitetails this year. In fact, I'll probably switch to whitetails for a while and go back to blacktails as I get older. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I like them all and I'll, I'll, I'll never not mule deer hunt. Like next week, I'm going mule deer hunting. Yeah. And uh, and I'll take a couple mules and a a friend from Southwest Oregon, Robin West, is going to go with me. um, So we'll go back into that upper Big Creek country and see what we can find. It's actually in an area that I guided in in 1990, um, the year that we left after our first tenure. I, I guided that fall. And uh, I saw some incredible bucks in early October in this area. It's very high elevation, 8,000 feet. But it's kind of like where the the bucks hang out before the rut starts, where they can be away from people. So we'll see. Haven't haven't been there since 1990. So, you know, that's uh. 27 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you um, Karis, do you enjoy pursuing deer uh better than elk or elk better or is it the same how, how's your personal uh, opinion on that well i've had more success with mule although i've shot quite a few elk over the years i i love to call elk um to me perform executing the lost wallet and pulling off a good calling scenario with elk a lost wallet on mule deer um the calling scenario with elk, they're neck and neck. I just can't rank one above the other. Yeah. But to me, there's a third one that's right in there, and that's uh, hunting red deer in New Zealand. Uh, very similar to calling elk. Um, very cagey animal. And uh, very close. They roar rather than bugle. And a lot of the same qualities. And that's got to be a very close number two to the tie between mule deer and elk for number one. Yeah. I'm, I love the running gun and calling of elk and they're big and there's a lot of meat to be had. But at the end of the day, I feel so drawn to the late season and, and so drawn. I don't know. I just love mule deer and whitetail and black. T- I love deer hunting and I love venison and, I, I, I'd have a hard time choosing between the two, but I, I kind of slightly lean towards deer. I'm not sure why. And a lot of elk hunters have a hard time understanding that, but I, I just really like deer hunting and I'm excited that it's that time of year and it's coming up and I'm getting really, uh, excited about pursuing, uh, blacktail deer. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I love blacktails too. I mean, they're, there's like five or six species. It's just hard to separate. When you're hunting them, they are number one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd say which one did I come the closest? Not that I did, but come the closest to mastering, it would be mule deer. Right. Um, now, that would you, be. You said you did a little one. rattling in that story you just told. Um, what was your success with rattling for the mule deer? I know a lot of guys do it blacktail hunting and, and <clears throat> whitetails, but. You don't hear a lot of it, mule deer. Well, they'll come in out of curiosity. You've got it's a timing game. Mm-hmm. Um, 
paddling doesn't work all the way through the rut. It's more in that challenge phase. And I think you've got to find the right buck um, for sure that maybe got beat up by a slightly bigger buck, but he's on the, he's on the fight. Um, and maybe that buck, which is me or, or us, um, is something that he can beat up uh, or dominate. And I, there's potential there. There's no question there's potential. But the way they come in is a little difficult. It's kind of like calling an elk. You know, if you're by yourself, chances are you're not going to have a shot because it's going to be too much frontal. Yeah, it's hard and, to get Yeah, and I, there haven't been many times I've rattled and pulled in a buck that really, truly offered a shot. Um, you'll get them in the area. And I'm trying to think, I don't think I ever rattled and then pulled off a successful shot on a buck. I can think of one that I missed, <laughs> but we've all got those. They, they're kinda, yeah. Yeah. And so they're kind of uh, high. I, I know you, you basically lived with the deer and, and friended all the does, but do you think that, you know, the same technique, you think it's possible if you're on a week long hunt? I mean, um, you, you know, like, you know, I'm going late hunting this year. You think it would be possible to, you know, kind of get in the groove and, and friend a doe like that? Or you think it's got to be years and years, you know, did you have, did you have luck your first year or? Well, didn't, didn't Clay Hayes go out, go uh, up the, out into the Frank church and, and, and have some, some close encounters with mule deer, uh, right out the gate doing, doing, using these techniques. Yeah. And we'd, we'd visited about that. Um, and uh, he might have visited with somebody else, too, on that topic. Um, so he had a little bit of intel on it. But, yeah, he did. He was successful. And I think it's doable. I think that when you're confined to one week, your timing's got to be just right. And there would be times that I would, uh, there just wasn't anything going. Mm-hmm. So I'd go back to where we lived and wait a week and go back again. When you're on a out of state or a long travel trip, you don't quite have that luxury. So there would be some luck on timing, luck on encountering the right dough. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's worth trying for sure. And I think to me, I've always felt that, uh, black tails, had potential that way, particularly in uh, semi-agricultural areas where they might have some people exposure. Um, and if they're really deep in the rut, I think it's got potential. And I have had black-tailed does run at me to try and get rid of a, a buck before. Um, it's been a while, I and mean, it hasn't happened a lot, but I've seen it happen. So I do think there's potential. I wouldn't know really. White tails, hmm probably the least of the three uh, between mule deer, blacktail, and whitetails. They just don't seem to be, whitetail bucks seem the least apt to lose their guard. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So the dates, um, I know it bounces around probably, but if you had a week to go rut mule deer hunting out west, what week would you pick? 
Well, the average date that I made kills on deer was November 9. I think that the range was like uh, November 7 to um, 18. But there was a skew towards earlier, like November 7, 8, 9, 10, right in there. So you'd want to you'd want to encase that period of time, and it's very it's very very uniform from year to year. Yeah, weather does make some degree of a difference on where they end up from a migration standpoint, yeah. but the actual approachability with a rut is totally related to estrus cycle, um, and that's pretty darn predictable. Awesome. Yeah, Robert's also headed headed over there to hunt mule deer in the late season this year. He's I'm 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 jealous. Uh, we'll oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, do you got any uh, any kind of advice you you can leave us with uh, as far as uh, mule deer hunting in the in the late season? Maybe a couple uh, little pointers you may have. I think that staying in the game is probably the most important thing and something that I tried to emphasize in those two traditional bow hunter magazine articles was you've got to keep your hands warm. You've got to stay comfortable in your camp um, enough so you stick with it. Um, If you're late hunting in Idaho in November or even December, uh, there's some December hunts in East Idaho. um, It's darn cold. And, um, chemical hand warmers uh, and or gloves that, that really work, uh, which usually is a glove with a hand warmer in it, um, <laughs> is a good idea because, you know, as we all know, as traditional bow hunters, your fingers have to perform when, when it really counts. And the coldest shot I ever took, which was with a Liberty longbow, I shot a, a buck, um, and Dave Dorn had a picture of it in his magazine for or his flyer for his archery pass business for many years. But it was uh, three above zero. And and I really feel that, and this is something that might not be totally traditional, but it sure helped me, that a chemical hand warmer uh, was the main ingredient in that because I was freezing. Yeah. And I, I'd spent some time doing the lost wallet wallet routine and uh, too much time with too much standing around and man I was ice cold except for my hand was warm which allowed me to get a good release and I did a hard shot at about 35 yards on a pretty nice four point but staying in the game staying comfortable um, not getting frustrated I think in today's times which are not as good for bountiful mule deer populations um, persistence is really critical. And I, and I also think that not depending upon one strategy, I think some calling, some rattling, some spot and stock, um, throw in a lost wallet if conditions look like they're conducive, but having a mixed bag and I just be depending upon one, one have, method. Have you done any yeah. ambush, ambush hunting, Jim? Yeah, I have. I built several blinds, and again, kind of reflected back to the sheep eaters, knowing that that was, <laughs> if not their primary, their secondary method. 
and it's harder. It's just really hard um, to sit in a self-made blind when it's single-digit temperatures uh, for very long. Um, I've had shots. I've missed some shots. Um, it's not been the most effective method for me. Uh, I would probably take spot and stock, ambush type through spot and stock opportunities still hunting um, over sitting in a blind. Today's blind options, you know, the bull blind and basically a, like a dome tent type thing, um, certainly open up some new avenues. I just can't get into that for some reason. I, I don't feel like I'm <laughs> challenged enough, even though I'm sure it's plenty of challenge. I enjoy being up in the tree, but that antelope hunt inside that blind, I felt really uh, claustrophobic and it was hard to um, really enjoy just having such a small view of uh, the, the outdoors. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think, uh, back on advice, um, scouting's huge. And I, and I really feel like scouting with today's capability with cameras and um, remote information gathering is not done enough. The actual boots on the ground, getting out, looking at tracks, looking at patterns, yeah. um, you know, identifying some does in the case of that technique. Yeah. Um, just getting more, more familiar with the environment, the way the winds tend to be. In certain uh, topographical situations, people just don't do enough in the field scouting anymore. Uh, I'm I'm glad and, you I'm gl- really glad you said that. Uh, that's kind of my big pet peeve. It seems like woodsmanship is going away uh, quickly with our younger generation relying on battery operated devices, and um, it, you know I I, I uh, definitely you know we vocalize that a lot on here that. You know, lear- learning these uh, skills are crucial, I think, to success and understanding tracking and uh, playing the wind and knowing your hunting ground uh, is definitely very important. Yeah, right. And you said it, it just boils down to woodsmanship. Right. And that complete woodsmanship is what's going to be the your biggest asset in traditional bowling. You know, Absolutely. a lot bigger than your bow type or your arrow type or whatever. It's yeah. That's the fundamental number one thing. You know? And it's 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 earned. It's not bought. It's earned. You're right, and it's mentored. And I right. do think that that the tendency is to not mentor enough uh, in that regard. And I've got a young guy. I'm helping Andrew Wallace is his name. He shot a buck this year, uh, last day of the season. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. That's kind and, of our, our goal and our hope with the, with the podcast is bringing uh, seasoned guys like yourself, uh, Norm Johnson, Baker, uh, all these guys we've been bringing on and educating the younger generation of the way uh, of woodsmanship and skill set. Yeah. And there's some people that are just supreme. Well, Buck Davis is another one. Yeah. Um, You know, from the Bend area, Buck is really a good outdoorsman. He's a good teacher. And I think 
I think that's really critical is the capability to, to pass it on well. Yeah. Mark Pinnaker, I mean, that guy's, yeah. that guy is uh, golden. Yep, he is. Yeah, Mark is. Uh, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. And I think that, like, if, if I am in that group or there's a group of us that are, uh, we need to be thinking about that for the future of our sport because it's critical for people sticking with it and not dropping out. And, I concur. You know, yeah, I was really happy to see James, the two, shot a cow this year. I mean, that's awesome. You know, uh, I appreciate it. Range. Yeah. It's it, it, range. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. That, that hunt is really special and meant a lot to me and I'm, I'm enjoying the fruits of my labor. We had uh, elk for dinner tonight and the family's real proud and I'm, I'm real excited. It, it, it was a really good hunt and I appreciate all the information you shared with me in your country. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You bet. Well, it's a, it's kind of a crapshoot. You never know. There's. It sounds like you got a little bit heavily peopled on yeah. the west side of the Eagle Cap, and it's kind of a hard thing to predict. But, but you came through on your own, and that's fantastic. Yeah. Th- thank you very much, uh, Robert. Do you got any more questions for Jim? No, I think uh, think that's it, Jim. Thanks for coming on. Um, I mean, it's just fascinating what what a Tell- life you've lived and. And just to those guys out there, like James said, that's kind of why we're doing this. You know, we get all the social media and all the people out there in our society. And then there's, then there's guys like you that, you know, live up there with the deer, befriend the does, get them to run a buck by it, to kill it. I mean, it's just, it's like 10 levels above anything else. And that's, like I said, that's why we're doing it. We appreciate you spending an evening with us and just, we could talk forever. We know, but we appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you bet, Robert. My pleasure. And James, it's been great visiting with you guys. And um, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. And Jim, can you go ahead uh, and tell everyone where they can find your book? Um, Cause it, it's a really, even though it doesn't touch on a lot of bow hunting, it is a really good read and it really gets you, you into that romantic uh backcountry living and and i really highly recommend it to all the listeners and so yeah if you could share with us where these guys can um get a copy of your book that'd be great yeah you bet thanks james um it's available through amazon there's one avenue you just google amazon books and then caxton press was our publisher um actually i think uh, we like to steer people towards caxton uh, for purchasing it, but Amazon's another avenue, and uh, we just sold out the first printing. It's going into the second printing, um, and it's also going to be available in ebook form through Amazon. Okay, can you repeat the title, please? Seven thousand and three days in the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness. Awesome. Thank thank you so much, Jim, and uh, good luck uh, on your deer hunting this fall, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Definitely get out there and get his book. It's an awesome read. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry. Check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Check out our website, tradquest.com. We look forward to bringing you guys more awesome deer hunting 
adventures this fall. Good luck to everybody out there.